Good morning, and it's a beautiful morning. It was a pretty terrifying night for some, but my son slept through it, which is good. And uh, thank you for having, having me this morning. I know last week we shared with my wife, Sarah, and Asher and I all up here and uh, got to tell you a little bit about us. I wanted to point out that this year is the 200th anniversary of uh, the first American missionary, Adoniram Judson, left Salem Harbor, 1812, to go to Southeast Asia, to Burma, and, uh, and other parts of that area. Translated the Burmese Bible, did so many things. He went over there as a congregationalist. If you've been to New England much, you know the Congregational Church, Congregationalist Church there, and, and pretty quickly became a Baptist. And it returned and ended up going back again with the Baptist Missionary Agency. But either way, uh, he was the first missionary from American soil known. And he carried a great gospel. We, we have a missionary God. And those who want to serve Jesus had better be prepared to go to the ends of the earth. Because that's where he's going. That's where the church is going, is growing. It's the very ends of this earth. And we've got to be prepared to go. And I really want to capture a little slice of this great gospel this morning from the story of David and Goliath in uh, 1 Samuel 17. You can turn there anytime. But I also wanted to share for you an urge. Would you pray for the Arab world? The Arab world that since last January has been undergoing revolution. And what started in Tunisia in that uh, jasmine-loving country has spread so that you smell jasmine in the air all over the Arab world. And so now the, those suffering the most seem to be in Syria. And would you pray for the Syrian people? Would you pray that God would give them quiet and peaceful lives and, and restrain evil and, and build His church and give His church strength and obedience and perseverance that they would be a faithful witness even unto their own death if it need be, just like Jesus was. And I was asked to just share briefly about our plans. My family uh, is planning to go to the Arab world at the end of this summer to serve on a team, a church planning team. We'll be learning Arabic for the first year and continue Arabic learning, I'm told, for the rest of my life, really. And, uh, and minister to among the, the majority community in the Arab world and among Christians and lead uh, and disciple Arab leaders in the church. Would you pray for us that God would provide everything we need? Uh, we are at 45% of our monthly support. And a part of this is having to raise support. And we need to get to 90% in order to buy our tickets to go. So would you pray that God would provide for all of that? And he can do it. And we just trust his timing. And we know that he'll provide for his work. So, so now let's turn to our text. 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read the bulk of the chapter. Such a great story. So let's read 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. I'll stop right around verse 54. So stay with me. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succo and Zekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. 
on, and the Philistines stood on the mountains on, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of the three son, his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, excuse me, Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abdanab, Abdabdab, <laughs> excuse me, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See, to your, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out up of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter, make, him his, father, make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? 
I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose again next to me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim, Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. 
And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Wow. Sometimes just reading it is enough of a sermon. Maybe we should pray. <laughs> Briefly. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your anointed one, a shepherd, to conquer the giant Goliath. And that you sent Jesus, a shepherd, to conquer a giant. And I pray that you would teach us today and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, where to begin? Maybe we'll start with Abraham. How about that? I only bring him up because it was to Abraham that the promise was made by God. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Goliath cursed Israel. And then you have the promised land. Why are the Philistines still there? This is important to know because in in Numbers, the dimensions of the promised land are given, right? All the way north of the Sea of Galilee, way up there, down into parks of, of Egypt there and over to the Jordan and, of course, to the sea. All of the, that land was supposed to be theirs, and yet there are Philistines. And then when David deposited the, the head in, in Jerusalem, that was a Jebusite-controlled Jerusalem. That wasn't Israeli-controlled. So there's an issue right there. There's a problem. The job hasn't been finished, conquering the land. This lofty promise that given to Joshua that every place your soul, your foot will touch will be yours, and yet... You read the beginning of Judges and it basically says, look, Israel failed. They haven't conquered the lands they were told. They were willing to tolerate other people. They disobeyed. In fact, after 15 judges and one king, Israel is still not all Israel. Isn't theirs yet. And that's the context that David enters. That's what the context is of this battle with the Philistines. They'd be a scourge to David the rest of his life. And Saul... The first king. Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul, a good man. And then Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord and kept back some of the the wealth of the Amalekites and even kept the Amalekite king alive. You can read about that a few chapters before here in 1 Samuel. And because he disobeyed and Samuel, the prophet, approached him about it, he made up excuses because he disobeyed and he made excuses for it. He was rejected by God. And then God chose David. Went to his house. The house of Jesse. That was Ruth's grandson, by the way. Jesse might have grown up on Ruth's lap. Went to Ruth's great-grandson. And anointed him to be king. This young man. And there's a really important verse. You can even look at it. It's in chapter 16. Verse 13, this is after David was anointed as, as to be the new king, not to take place immediately, but he would be king. And this is what it says in verse oh, 13, the end of that verse, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The spirit of the Lord was upon David. And that's a key, because I want this morning to point us and basically to draw a straight line from David to the Lord Jesus. 
David is a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. And the basis for any kind of type of Christ is the fact that the same spirit of the Lord who was on David was on Jesus and is on every believer today. Why does, David, why does Jesus look so much like David? Or maybe a better theological way of putting it, why does David look so much like Jesus? The spirit of the Lord is there with the same men. And of course, Jesus being God's son himself, obviously unique. And then for us today, the same spirit. Now, do we fight giants and reign a kingdom that will have no end? Yes, actually, we do. It's God who fights the battles for us, just like with David. And we are co-kings, rulers, with Christ over a kingdom. But anyway, before I get ahead of myself, why don't we turn to the story a little bit, this uh, battle of champions. And in a battle of champions like this, it's not so much that the champions fight and begin the battle. You know, it's not that who takes the first shot thing. It's... Whoever wins the champion's battle ends the battle and wins it for their side. And this battle of champions on the fields in Israel, in Judah's territory, there are Philistines there, that's a problem. And here comes Goliath with his armor. We're in the Bronze Age, by, age, by the way, um, although just the beginnings of the Iron Age. And so the, the head of his spear was 15 pounds of iron, 600 shekels. His mail the coat of mail, 125 pounds, bronze. His shield was so big, it would have been one of those full-size body shields that his shield bearer had to carry out to battle for him. And then his, uh, his helmet, of course. And what's interesting is these, um, the leg armor on his, probably below the knee, some translations have it translated as, uh, what's the word? Oh, somebody say it. What is it? Greaves. greaves, thank you. The greaves on his shins. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, it's his metcha. Metza on his, on his shins. The word there is actually forehead. He wears forehead, a forehead on his, on his shins, on his legs. Forehigs is the name for that piece of armor. Essentially, the same word. Metcha. And of course, he's, what does it say? Six cubits in a span. That would be nine feet, nine inches tall. Um, at a time when the average Israelite was about five foot three. And, and David was probably average. After all, he could wear Saul's armor, so they were probably the same size as men. Um, maybe he was nine feet nine. I want to just share with you that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even Josephus' account have him as four cubics in a span. I'm not going to say which is correct, but that would put him at six feet nine. Either way, he's a giant of a man. I'm six one, by the way. <laughs> and then he cursed Israel. I defy the ranks of Israel this day, is what he said. How blatant. He cursed Israel. And... You know what that reminds me of? A lot of people in Scripture, in the Old Testament, who cursed Israel, it didn't go so well for them. Sennacherib is, is spoken of in Isaiah when he led his armies from Assyria against Israel. And he's described as one who mocked and reviled Israel. Isaiah writes, against whom you've raised your voice and lifted your eyes on the hikes against the Holy One of Israel. And of course, Sennacherib was judged and 185,000 of his army were wiped out in a night. 
But let's get back into this story. And as Goliath taunts Israel, and David comes up from Bethlehem, from Ephratath, a, a region of Bethlehem there. Of course, uh, <clears throat> the same town that Naomi was from. Comes out, about 14-mile journey to the battle, bringing bread, bringing uh, cheeses for the commander. Now, I like this. You can tell it's a Middle Eastern story because in the Middle East you have, uh, well, I think they call it wasta, this thing where you have connections and you need to make connections. And if you want to get anything done, we in the U.S. might fill out forms and talk to a bureaucracy or whatever to get things done. Well, in the Middle East you, you know people and you make friends and you get things done. And, uh, you know, Jesse's looking out for his sons and sending the, the cheese to the commander of their thousand, taking care of them. And then David comes to the battle. And there, notice who's afraid. When Goliath came out, the first one mentioned who was afraid in verse 11 is Saul. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul was afraid. He was the king who was anointed by God, just like David was. In fact, that's why David later on had a chance to kill him and would not, because Saul was anointed, and yet he's afraid. He doesn't believe that God is going to win their battles. All of Israel is afraid. So David comes out and says, don't let your hearts fail because of this Philistine. And then he contrasts uh, the Lord. He says, who is this one? Define the living God. How does he put it in verse uh, 26? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In contrast to Goliath's gods who are fake, who are dead, who are idols. Dagon is one of the Philistine gods. Dead. And here we have the living God. Who is this man who's going to stand up to the living God? And then Goliath's fatal mistake, let's just read it. When, and this, this comes later, it was mentioned before, but it's especially obvious in 43, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The same word there in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Those who curse you, I will curse. By his gods. Why don't we talk? Uh, just ask a few more questions. This story raises so many fun questions. Um, the sling stones. How big was a sling stone? There's an archaeological site, Tel and Naspa, where 500 sling stones were excavated there in the Middle East. They're about the size of a tennis ball, solid stone, and at 150 miles an hour, that's a formidable weapon. And then the question comes, where did David strike Goliath? That's normally obvious, right? Any, read any children's Bible, you'll see good pictures. David, with a stone sunk into his forehead, collapsed. Of course, the Scripture says he fell forward. Interesting. Physics would tend to make you question, why did he fall forward if he was struck in the, in the head? But, of course, then he was struck in his mitzchah, is what the Hebrew says. And it sank into it. It may very well be that David struck Goliath on the armor of his leg, taking him down to the ground, prostrating him before Israel, really. You remember in, in chapter 5 when 
when Dagon, the god, the idol in the temple of the Philistines was there and they brought the Ark of the Covenant in and sat it in the temple of Dagon after the Philistines had seized it. And the next morning, Dagon was found, what? Prostrated straight down on his face. And then the next morning, was found severed. And David prostrates Goliath and then he severs his head. And really, verse 50 can be just as easily translated, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and then he killed him. When did he kill him? When he cut off his head. There was no sword in the hand of David, verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. He used his own sword. This is the the Beniah principle, I, I like to call it. I've heard it called. Uh, Beniah was one of the, David's mighty men. And in 2 Samuel, it said that he encountered an Egyptian, another giant of a man, and ran out with nothing but a staff, grabbed the Egyptian's spear out of his hand, and then killed the Egyptian with his own spear. Used his own weapon against him. You know when God turns an army against itself to judge it. That happens sometimes in the Old Testament. It's recorded. When, God, when, when, when an enemy of the Lord is knocked out and taken and killed by his own weapon, that means God is judging him. When God uses his own opponent's weapons against them, he judges them. And that's what David has done. And then he took the head of this giant and cast it over the wall, seemingly, or, or took it to Jerusalem to that place not yet conquered. Really as to say, look, this is what happens to anyone who curses the Holy One of Israel. Basically to say, if you curse Israel, if you can remain hostile, then you will be destroyed by your own weapons, even by a seemingly weak opponent, just like David was. And now let's begin to draw the line to Jesus. Jesus was said to have died at the place of a skull. There's no other reference in Scripture to any place known by the, any skull. In fact, in all of Scripture, the only association of a place in Israel with a skull is this. The site where David took Goliath's head and deposited it to the Jebusites to, as a, an act to terrify them. Interestingly enough, that Jesus himself would later take death and by death, conquer it. As a weak peasant, infant born, but grow up to a man and, and dying. Luke even seems to be retelling a David story. Begins with a pre-birth story of an infertile couple who give birth to John the Baptist, just like Hannah and her husband gave birth to Samuel, a prophet who then anointed David has his counterclaimant to the throne, Herod, who tries to kill the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Saul tried to do that. He's from Bethlehem. And you know in Micah chapter 5, the promise there, let me read it, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratath, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins is from of old, from ancient days. Not another son of David who rebels against God. 
That's not what God is promising. But another David. One who would come from Bethlehem. Where were, where were David's sons born? Mostly in Jerusalem. And all of his descendants who rebelled. We don't need another son of David. No, we need a, another David. The Lord Jesus. He's promised. And of course the covenant was with David's house. That one day there would be a ruler who would rule Israel forever. Rule God's people forever. Jesus looks a lot like David. David looked a lot like Jesus. And Jesus conquered death by death. He cursed Satan by turning Satan's own weapon against him. And I want to ask the question, what difference does this make? If God has conquered death by death in Jesus, just as the song was earlier, that God, Christ has risen from the grave, from the dead, trampling over death by death, then what difference does it make? How would we view, if we really believe that Christ has conquered death, whether that means that the reality of resurrection is there, how does that make us view all kinds of things differently? How does it make us view mental illness? Or, or people, or even our own children who might be born with deformities? Or if Christ has conquered death, how should we view cancer? What does that change? Or even something as terrifying and tragic as a stillborn infant. Even a miscarriage. If God in Christ has conquered death, then it changes our whole outlook when we mourn. It gives a hope even though we're grieving. How should we view Alzheimer's? When we know that resurrection is a very bodily thing where a new body glorified will be given when death is conquered. And Wow. Because Christ conquered death and gives resurrection, I can bring my whole family to the Middle East and go anywhere God leads us. If that wasn't true, I don't think I would do it. I'm not saying it's that dangerous of a place per se for us. But any risk, you could take any risk for the gospel if Christ has conquered death. I want to read you a little story. This is out of our own Marty Hutchison's mother's book. Maybe you've seen it by Ruth Ann Burchell. They were missionaries in Africa for a long time. Maybe some of you have met them, I don't know. And she tells a story and basically shows how this death conquering death has power. It was a day um, when the hospital there was down to bare bones staff there in Africa. And they said they were passing the front doors on their way to dinner when coming up the path was a local ambulance. Now think ambulance in a little different way. It was four men with poles in their shoulders with a filthy old sheet tied to them with a bundle of a, someone in the middle lying there being carried curled up. It was an old African lady with snow white hair. And she had traveled this way courtesy of her sons and family for more than 36 hours to find help. And two days before, this is what had happened, a thief had entered the hut where the family was sleeping. She couldn't run out like the rest of the family did, so she was stuck there. And when the thieves robbed them, they sliced this grandmother from one side of her chest to the other and left her for dead. The family had returned to her as quickly as they could bundled her up, and went to the hospital. The medical staff led them into the operating room where they laid her on the stretcher. If an African could be white as a ghost, she was. 
but she was alive, conscious, and displayed a big smile showing a lack of teeth due to her age. When we gingerly pulled back the rags which were covering her, we discovered her chest lying wide open. One could look right into the chest cavity, see her heart beating. The lung on that side was totally collapsed, and we were all amazed to see her alive in such a condition. Each of us took our position. Two of them tried to insert a chest tubes. Another started to clean the area. My assignment was to start the IV, and usually this was one of my areas of expertise. But this thin little lady had no blood left to even find a vein, let alone thread a needle into it. I breathed a prayer, oh God, help me. Then it came clearly to my mind. This lady was kept alive all this time so she might hear the gospel. I looked into her eyes, which were very close to my face, and I was bent over working on starting the IV. They were fixed on me. I quickly and quietly asked if she believed in God. She nodded in the affirmative. I then asked her if she knew his son. A totally puzzled look came over her face. And she said, who is he? I answered, his name is Jesus. If you believe in him, then you, when you die, he will take you to heaven to be with God. Her attention was focused upon me, and her eyes said, can this be true? It was obvious to all of us that she would not live much longer. She had no blood left, and yet she was living. I said to her very slowly and clearly, if you believe that I have, what I have told you, say his name after me, Jesus. Her eyes were full of questions, and it seemed an eternity before she answered. I repeated, Jesus, and haltingly, she whispered, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She repeated that name several times, each time lower and slower. And then a broad, beautiful smile covered her face. Her eyes closed peacefully. She left that old body to be with him in heaven. And may I add, to receive a new body one day. There was no doubt in any of our minds who had kept her alive for all those long, treacherous hours and why he had done so. And just to share a quick personal story. Uh, that death, conquering death makes a difference. That an old widow that my family got to know and, and befriend and love dearly, her name was Drusilla. Uh, we would have a lot of fun with her. We went to revivals together and we'd go out after the revival and it was a Baptist revival so it went late. And then we'd go out for dessert afterward and this, this woman of, of about 90 could... I mean, she could down cobbler like it was nobody's business. And we'd stay out late till midnight or, or later, you know, and, and just talk. And she was just full of the gospel. It was on her, on her lips all the time. It was amazing. And over time, we got to see her lose her sight, lose her ability to drive, of course. And she always prayed, Lord, would you protect my mind? Would you protect me from ever losing that? Because if I can't think right, how can I pray? How can I witness? And she would tell me whenever I'd see her that she said, Preston, I call your name out to the Lord every morning. And she would get up at five, she told me, listen to the Bible Broadcasting Network, do her exercises, and then pray for what must have been an hour for her family, for me, for many others. And when she started to take a turn for the worse and stayed with her 70-year-old son in his house, uh, we were up in Boston at seminary. And we came down for a weekend, and uh, Sarah and I, my brother, and another dear friend uh, went to visit her, knowing that it would probably be the last time. 
And she was not in her house, which upset her. She wanted to be in her little house that she lived in for I don't know how many years. And we went to visit her, and we were told, don't stay more than half an hour, really, at most, because she, she's tired and she hasn't done well with visitors. We came in, and she was sitting in an easy chair, and we just sat on the floor around her and talked. We were there for over an hour, and she held up so well. She was so excited, and every few minutes, I mean, just a hymn would roll off her tongue, and she would say something, that just a, a brief prayer, or, and talk to us, and her mind was still pretty sharp, actually. And for the first time in my life, I could not hold back the emotion to see someone who absolutely believed that her death had already been conquered and that she would have a resurrected body. She absolutely believed it. No question. And we prayed with her. And then a few months after that, she passed away. And that hymn, that song we sang, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. It's almost as though you can say that. I could almost say that to Drusilla. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake, Drusilla. Come awake. You will come awake in Christ. And we will be like him. It makes all the difference. It changes everything we do. And it's also a warning that the living and the dead, the just and the unjust, will rise would you trust Jesus as the one who died for you and rose again, conquering death in your place as a champion, winning a victory for you, just like David did? It makes all the difference. And if you'd ever like to talk about that, if you've never trusted him like that, talk to Camper or I or someone else you know who knows Jesus. Praise God. He trampled over death by death. A shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who was the good shepherd, conquered a giant. It was death. He conquered it. Amen.